G'day everybody, welcome back to the Birders Guide. Great to have you here again. Hope you've all had a wonderful fortnight. It's been a pretty average one here in the mid-north of South Australia. It's been wet, it's been cold, it's been windy. So not great birding weather, but good winter weather for farmers and gardens. So, uh, I mentioned last time that we were going to head to the beach, take our boys to the beach, because someone had, or well, my mother-in-law had promised them a beach trip about five months before that was going to actually eventuate. Um, I did win the argument and we ended up at Bald Hill Beach, which is uh, very much not a swimming beach, but uh, is quite good for birding. So I sat there in my deck chair with my scope out and did some birding and the boys dug around in some seaweed and threw rocks in the water. So everybody won. Now I've been listening to a few other birding podcasts, not Australian, but um, the ABAs mostly, American Birding Associations, and they've been discussing, uh, going along with Black Lives Matter and um, Black Birders Week, they've been discussing the need, or the lack of need, to change some of their common English names, which are named after individual people. Now, I told myself I wouldn't bring this up, and I generally steer clear of voicing my opinion on most things. I just, I'm not interested in getting into the politics or the arguing back and forwards and nobody wins sort of jazz. But given that the conversation we're about to listen to is, is pretty relevant to that, uh, I thought I might just, you know, have a chat about it briefly. So the US obviously has more, say, well, a more prominent history of slavery and the less than ideal treatment of African Americans and their indigenous cultures. And it's not to say that Australia's history is any less traumatic for our indigenous Australians, but it's less prominent, it's less talked about. So without having any information around it, I thought I'd have a quick look into our bird names, Australian bird names. Now I just want to say that if I say anything in the next two or three minutes that is just plain wrong, feel free to let me know. I didn't do a deep biographical dive into each name. I just had a quick Wikipedia search while I was supposed to be doing other stuff, to be honest. So always happy to be corrected if I'm actually wrong. So, but basically I, look, I looked through my field guide and picked out all the names that looked on face value that they were named after an individual. Let's say Gordy and Finch. Just to put out a caveat, this is only common names, not scientific names. For example, the black grass wren is named after someone, maybe, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, Frederick someone, I think. But you would, you would literally never know that from the name black grass wren. And no one is suggesting we change scientific names. I don't even know if you can change scientific names. But this is just common, common English names. And I ignored all the pelagic species and the ones that are, you know, spread around the world like Balin's Creek, etc, etc. And I came up with 13 species, uh, which are potentially named after people. And that's pretty good, considering the American Birding Association, or the ABA, American Birding Area, I think, has around 150. So 13 is not too bad. Now, one thing you will find if you actually sit down and do this exercise yourself is that flicking through the list of Australian birds, the vast majority are named very simply and mostly around what they look like. Say, the chestnut-breasted cuckoo. Now, if you saw a cuckoo, that would 
that had a chestnut breast and was a cuckoo. You might it might be a fantailed cuckoo, but you could reasonably say, oh, that's probably a chestnut-breasted cuckoo. And that's quite quite handy, actually. But I was genuinely surprised when I actually paid attention at how often our birds are just named basically, simply, and after what they look like. My Wikipedia searching, and a little bit of other stuff, and uh, looking in this book that we're about to talk about, are named after people who have genuinely made a positive difference. And as far as I can tell, nobody was involved in an Aboriginal massacre or, you know, the further reduction, if that was even possible, the further reduction of Aboriginal rights, etc. So it doesn't seem to me, on face value, like we need to go down the path of the US and have the discussion around bird names. With that being said, this is my opinion, and I haven't said this out loud to anybody, along with probably most of my other opinions. If there was somebody, let's say, let's say Gould, John Gould, right? So the Gouldian Finch is named after his wife. Now, if John Gould or his wife had been involved in an Aboriginal massacre in the past, then I think we should change the name. Now, I know that most people, no, not most people, I know that some people will think, oh, don't be ridiculous. You're just, that's being politically correct, that's gone over the top, that's just pandering to people that can't just get a grip on reality. Now, I understand that argument, and I think that with a lot of things, but I also think that having a bird or something named after you is a huge honour. And I think it simply comes, it doesn't, it's not about erasing history it's not about removing that person from the history books it's not about just smoothing over things and hoping they go away or whitewashing society or whatever it is about the fact that having a bird named after you is an honor and we should choose very carefully who the people that we want to honor are my argument is just don't name them after anybody just just call it the multicolored finch or something or other. But anyway, that's my opinion. But I haven't found any reason to do that. I haven't found anyone in that list of 13 that actually did something wrong, you know, to the degree that we need to go about the hassle of changing names. But if anyone knows anything different, let me know. We'll have a chat about it. So without any further ado, let's get into today's conversation. You're listening to The Birder's Guide with Michael Greenshirts. So today on the show we've got Ian Fraser who is a very well-known bloke around the traps. He has written a book that I have got a copy of called Australian Bird Names, Origins and Meanings. Um, I've got the second edition. I don't know what the first edition, how that is different. But it is a fantastic book if you're interested in words, names, meanings, origins. Uh, I would highly recommend getting it. And the rest of it we will chat about in this conversation. So, Ian, welcome to The Birder's Guide. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I feel flattered. Now, I will admit that when I first read your book, which is the book we're going to be talking about uh, shortly, I had pictured you in my mind as a... Uh, grey-haired professor academic sort in a in a nicely pressed suit 
that is a perhaps an erroneous assumption. Um, Anyone who knows me would be laughing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you've you've done a lot over the years uh, with birds and and nature in general. Do you want to give us a, a brief rundown of your involvement in that area? Oh well, I um, I started. Uh, many years ago in Adelaide, I did a zoo degree at Adelaide Uni. Um, I worked briefly at the South Australian Museum, but then I worked um, in a, a for the South Australian Conservation um, um, Centre, uh, doing um, schools-based work. A program called Inspect, which is long since defunct, I think. I moved to Canberra the, um, oh, 40 years ago now, at the beginning in 1980. I worked. Uh, for a while in the non um, uh, non government um, environment uh, organisations here, I've been self employed for quite a while. Um, everything to do with natural history. I've run tours, uh, educational um, environmental tours all around Australia. And in the last decade, I've chaired a ACT government um, advisory committee. I've uh, done done a lot of work for local ABC uh, radio on natural history. I've, um, written some books. I teach adult education classes. Um, so yeah, I've, I've never uh, never been an academic. Uh, never really sat in an office except my own. Um, the um, the only bit of, of your description of me that I can't argue with is the grey. My beard used to be red. <laughs> it's not red anymore. Mm, there you go. So how did you? Well, I guess what was your first love in nature? Was it birds, plants, bugs? You know. It was um, no. I, as a little boy, uh, my passion was uh, big, scary mammals, which I guess is what little boys are into. Yep. Uh, it was my dad who um, led me into nature. Um, I remember uh, he he was working at Roseworthy Agricultural College, north of Adelaide. Oh, yeah. We lived in a farmhouse out of town. Um, I used to go out in the paddocks. Um, there was a bull terrier called Peter that was sent along to protect me. Um, I remember encountering sleepy lizards sat in the paddocks there. Um, birds came when I was about 12. I've actually, Mum kept for me a, um, a diary I wrote of a, of a family holiday uh, down to Malang on Lake Alexandrina. Um, and I made a note of the birds that I, I saw there. Um, given the, what the, I only would have only had Kaylee to refer to as well as Dad, of course. Um, mostly uh, the, the the list I came up with was was re you know pretty plausible. Now uh, one of my first uh, um, memories is wandering around the shores of of, of uh, Lake Alexandrina, of course, um, and wandering around wetlands is still one of my favourite activities. And I've got a specially fond memory of a colony of stilts just down the road. And I remember them, you know, how they whirl up in the air, yapping like little dogs when you go and disturb them. And that, that's a very special memory of mine. Um, later, uh, well, also, Dad uh, and Mum introduced me to the orchids up in the Adelaide Hills. Um, so I'm a bit of an old-fashioned naturalist. I'm uh, I'm interested in everything, but birds and orchids are probably are still my major passions. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, I'm based in Adelaide and spend a fair bit of time birding in all those places you've just mentioned. So I've asked you to come on the show to talk about your book. Before we get into it, I will just acknowledge that uh, you're not the only author. Uh, you wrote it with Jeannie, I think that's... Jeannie, Jeannie Gray is an old friend and Gray. A, a linguist. Yep. How do you two know each other or how did you get in touch with each other? Oh, well, um, I think we, we first 
merits at that stage came on some of my tours locally around Canberra and we've just been good friends ever since um, we've always had um, uh, well common interest in birds of course and natural history in general uh, but in words as well it's these the two my two main passions in many ways of birds and words um, I well the birds we talked about a bit the words came from mum probably um, so you know dad and mum combined in this I guess um, my interest is being, well, firstly in writing, I've done quite a lot, um, I didn't mention I've written quite a few books about natural history, including uh, three now for CSIRO. Um, but uh, my interest in words in this case is English words, um, how, how words derive, that was my part of the book. Jeannie is a linguist, and a very good one. Um, she's a classical scholar. She also, um, for the purpose of this book, was able to um, uh, access original um, material which hadn't been translated into English in many cases, um, French, um, German, Swedish, Italian I can think of offhand and I'm sure there are others as well. Um, so her, what I'm going to talk about with you, which I think is what you want to talk about is the English names of birds, mm. but her contribution was an equally um, solid one um, with examining the origins of all of the, uh, of the Latin names of the birds. Yeah. Yep. So how did you how did you get to the point where you decided that together you would actually write this book? What was the did you have a, a moment that you just oh, it was probably no I I, I truly can't remember exactly um, it was over a decade or so now, ago now um, I think it was probably one of those comments probably over dinner one evening why don't we write a book about this and I think it took off from there I know we were talking about it for some years there was a while there where um, I couldn't commit myself I was working on other things um, and so I think it, uh, it it was just something that developed over time yeah I would recommend that everybody buys this book um, I came across it completely by accident, to be honest. I got a Amazon gift card from somebody and was just flicking through Amazon trying to decide what book to spend it on and found this one and thought it sounded quite interesting and bought it and have been completely fascinated by it. But I'm just wondering, there's a there's a section at the start, or maybe actually before then, do you want to run us through perhaps one, two or three of... Uh, some of the guys that are, well, I think most of them are guys. Yeah, I apologise if they're not. Um, the guys at the front of the book who have oh, yeah, contributed. Right. Those were those were the days I'm afraid. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, John Gould and and all of those, all of those types. Do you have anything interesting to say about them? Yes. Um, maybe if I could put it into context to talk about how. Um, where they fit into the naming of Australian birds. So if I can go mm. back a little bit, um, th there's a series of stages. There were, first of all, there's old names of uh, bird groups which are found well beyond um, Australia. Um, just, you know, duck, for example, which actually yep. is an old English word which was meant to dive into water. Mm -hmm. Owl, which like many old names, is on the Matapaic, that is to say it's uh, uh, named for the call of the bird. Um, but not all from from English. Um, cockatoo was already known before they were found in Australia from a Malay or Indonesian word. Um, Koel was from Hindi, and clearly the, the Hindi speakers heard the call of Koel exactly the same way that we do. Chikana mm. is a word from the uh, Tupatic um, Guarani, Guarani um, language of Brazil. Then we have 
more old names but which were applied wrongly to vaguely similar but unrelated Australian birds. So if it was big and black and white, it was a magpie. If yep. it was small and brown and hopped into a bush with a cocktail, um, it was a wren, even though they didn't all turn out to be brown after a while. If it was black with a down-curved bill, it was a chuff and so on. Then we had these weird combination names when they couldn't make existing names fit the birds in Australia and they didn't know how to or probably weren't interested in asking local people um, what they called the birds and we'll get back to indigenous names in a little while. So we have weird things like cuckoo shrike and quail thrush. Now that, those combination of names are birds that aren't even in the same order as each other, let alone, um, uh, let alone closer than that. Shrike tit, magpie lark, an attempt to sort of look for characteristics of these birds and drag them together into one, well, I don't know, comical, awkward, depending on how you want to look at it, name. Um, now, some of the, now we're getting to what you, um, what, what you really want to know. Some of these were coined by ornithologists, which we'll talk about in a minute. Others seem to have arisen spontaneously among the colonists, that is the people, um, Europeans working on the land. So names like brush turkey, stubble quail, Cape Baron Goose, White-necked Heron, Lyrebird, Catbird, don't seem to have been coined by anyone in particular. They just arose in communities. Um, Gould, you've mentioned, and he, was, he wasn't the first person, uh, first European to be naming Australian birds. Um, John Latham had a go at it. He was the towering figure of um, British ornithology around the end. Um, very few of his names survived for fairly good reason. Um, but Gould was was a, a colossus of, uh, of, of taxonomy um, of birds and mammals in the first half of the 19th century in Australia. Hundreds of names that he coined um, are still in, um, scientific names I'm talking about now are still in use, but he also coined lots of common names. Now, I'm going to come back to this a bit later when we talk about uh, somewhat unusual names because Gould had this habit of directly translating his Latin names and making common names out of them. So a lot of those names didn't survive, but a lot of his names did. Not much happened in terms of um, new names coming into the language until the end of the 19th century. And the next major figure was another John called John Leach. He was a Victorian country school teacher. Um, he founded the Gould League of Nature Lovers. He was an early president of the RAOU, the Royal Australasian Ornithological Union. Um, he was the author of the first Australian field guide. And in this, importantly in our context, he chaired the RAOU committee, um, which produced um, a list in 1926, a checklist of Australian birds. And it was undoubtedly Leach's influence in this committee, which led to this committee coming up with an embedding in the language, words which we take for granted now, kookaburra, galah, thornbill, triller, and currawong. And in fact, that um, list wasn't revised for 50 years until a 1977, the new RAO list was put out, which introduced or formalized again, another suite of names that we would take for granted now, fairy red, jerigony, monarch, Boatbill, um, hobby. Sometimes a lot of these they dragged from overseas uh, to internationalise it. Um, sometimes they were controversial. Um, I've never really come to terms with names like uh, 
uh, Baza or Thickney in, in, in particular. Thickney has um, fortunately disappeared from the Australian lexicon. Um, Lapwing they introduced too to bring us into line with, with European ones. So that's a, a sort of a brief summary of uh, European naming of birds in English. Mm. You're a, a walking encyclopedia, I can see that that's how this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you not talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine, that's fine, no drama there. Um, one paragraph that you wrote that I did find very interesting, and it's just it's just one paragraph, is talking about hyphens in bird names, and I'd never thought oh, yeah. about the ins and outs of it, but um, yeah, if you've got a few sentences on, on that. No, it was um, that one we introduced. Yeah, we, we didn't actually put it into the first edition, which was in 2012. Uh, but we realised that it actually uh, was significant. I know, I've just talked about some of the hyphenated names. Um, but uh, there's also there's a lot of controversy about it even now. But um, So we talk about things like black cockatoo or storm petrel, fairy wren, etc. Now, the convention is generally that you you capitalise the second word, like black cockatoo, if it actually is a cockatoo, storm petrel, for example. Fairy wren and button quail, you won't capitalise the second word because those birds are not wrens or quails, respectively. Um, there's, look, there's, you, you can read online in the um, inter, uh, IOC, International Orthological Congress, word page, for example, there's a whole essay about it, and they, they tend to do away with hyphens altogether and um, lump, lump the two words together. There's no, there are no internationally accepted rules about that, but I think the, the one about the uh, capitalising or not the second word is a probably important one that does need to be stuck to. Mm. You're, um, the last sentence there... Uh, also says that there's very little consensus um, and the handbook of the birds of the world retain black cockatoo with a hyphen and cockatoo is in lowercase letters so that's right you know that's right yeah that's, I mean, it's, that's very helpful as I said there are no rules it's a personal preference ultimately but it's good to be consistent yeah 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 so we, we won't talk too much more about the first section of this book which is uh, all about names and how they came about and renaming birds and all of that sort of stuff but if anyone is is interested, um, definitely get it. Uh, the book it's it's really fascinating. I learned a fair bit um, about it. But continuing on, I, I'm interested to know what the process is. How do you find out when something is first mentioned? A lot of a lot of the species in here it says first mentioned here and here and here by this person. How do you know that? Are you are you taking an educated guess or? Uh, if I'm guessing, I always say so in the book. Um, for, for a start, um, well, I, I'll tell you what we what we did, or what I did for my part of it. For a start, don't ever underestimate the power of a good dictionary. For old, that is, you know, pre-Australian names, um, a, a, a big um, Oxford English dictionary um, is absolutely invaluable. Um, it will trace the name bird, bird names back as far back as they can find it in literature and give you references uh, and examples of it. So I don't have to do more than just look that up for those. There's a bloke called W.B. Lockwood in 1984 wrote um, an Oxford Dictionary of British Bird. Uh, a lot of his stuff, I think, is somewhat controversial. He speculates without saying so in cases. So it's to be taken with a grain of salt, but it's certainly a very useful um, 
reference. Um, Newton's 1896 Dictionary of Birds published in London is also a really good um, reference. So he's done that, 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 some of that work. For Australia, I searched through every field guide that's been written. I went through all of Gould's um, multiple volumes of Birds of Australia. In fact, one of the joys of writing the book was every time I turned my computer on, I had open on the screen um, the uh, digitised version, courtesy of the National Library of Australia, of the um, of his uh, of Gould's works, and that was a wonderful thing to see every day. Um, Hansab, of course, the Handbook of Australian, New Zealand, Australian Birds, a monster, was it, nine-volume set. Fairly mm. dry reading, but uh, it's a pretty bad book <laughs> for the words. There are various published CSIRO lists, Macquarie Dictionary in Australia, yeah, plus the um, Australian National Dictionary are both great value in this. Um, Morris wrote in 1896 a Dictionary of Australian English, which was useful. And um, I went back through online um, volumes of EMU, the uh, the, the uh, scientific journal of uh, uh, the Australia, uh, well, what, what is now Birds Life Australia, we used to be the REOU, right back to the start, virtually the start of the uh, 19th century. The Biodiversity Heritage Library is a US-based consortium uh, of natural history and botanical libraries, which make old natural history literature, including books, freely available, which is wonderful. But by far the most valuable resource was Trove, coordinated by the National Library of Australia. It's a searchable digital collection of newspapers and pamphlets and old books. goes right back to the first colonisation colonization of Australia. There's millions of pages of it. And as I say, you can search it. Um, and that, so you can get um, obscure newspapers from all over the country. Um, it's an ongoing process. More and more are being digitised all the time. Um, so I was able to find more material for the second edition than I'd had for the first. I was able to push some names further back. Um, so I suppose all you can ever say is that a particular date is the oldest reference that, you, that, um, that is, seems to be currently available because a new material can come up. Um, but that's the basis of it. It wasn't just speculation. It was actually based on search. Mm. There's also a problem, and it's a, um, a fairly meaningful problem, that so many names seem to be based on oral usage. Um, understandably, people they're used by people on the land. Um, they didn't write it down. It suddenly appeared out of nowhere in print. It must have been around before that. Um, Zebrafinch is an example of this. Um, Zebrafinch uh, doesn't appear that I can find until 1865, but that's only in reference to cage birds. It's first used for wild birds wasn't until 1895. Now, the official name was um, Chestnut Eared Finch, and there were virtually no other um, official names. So I don't believe that every farmer around Australia um, with with uh, have zebra finch around their homestead, around at their farm dam, uh, was calling him chestnut eared finch. What were they calling him? We don't know. The only um, option I've come across was a few years ago in Central Australia, where a bloke I was talking to referred to him as hundreds and thousands. It was a lovely name, but you will not find that in writing anywhere online. Um, it's that's an example of a purely oral usage. Mm. So, do you have any favourite names or meanings? that you came across during all your research? Michael, do you mind going back to the indigenous names before we do that? 
we can go anywhere you like. Let, let's do that before we lose the track of origins of names. I don't want to stick it on the end as an afterthought. Now, we do have um, some Australian birds uh, carrying Indigenous names. In my opinion, far too few. Most of those names that uh, we still use are onomatopoeic, a word I've talked about before, and I think you can hear it. Boobook, Gang Gang, uh, Wonga, um, all onomatopoeic. They were all used from early on in the settlement. Uh, Boo books certainly um, seems to, well, almost certainly seems to have come from the Sydney language. We can't say with certainty um, what the name of that language was, although Gutter or Gutter was often cited as that. Um, so a lot of these days, all we can say is they are of Indigenous origin, but not of which language. And to talk about the Aboriginal language is as uh, woolly and disrespectful as to talk about the European language or the Asian language. It doesn't make sense. Um, Budgerigar, in various spelling forms, as you might expect, is known from 1845. Gould recorded it, and I found it a reference to it three years before that. Other Indigenous names which are recorded were recorded early in the 19th century, but didn't come into use, widespread use in English for a long time. For example, Karawong, Kookaburra. Wampu, Corella, Brolga, all yeah, we think of as English words now, only appeared in general use well into the 20th century. And in fact, the as I've mentioned before, the 1926 recommended names list uh, was responsible for bringing some of those um, into, common, into common usage. Until 1926, the usual name for uh, Kookaburra uh, was either Great Brown Kingfisher or Laughing Jackass. Um, there are other uh, Indigenous names used locally. Quarian for cockatiel, I love. Um, Lowen for Malifowl uh, are still used in English um, locally. I think Lowen is used in Western Victoria. Um, I'd love to see that as use is extended, but it's probably not going to happen. One I am very fond of, uh, which is not widely in, in wide use in English, is Nini, um, which I'm doubtless mispronouncing, which is a Pichitanjana word for zebrafish. And that lovely little toy trumpet type call of zebra finches, I think it captures very beautifully. If we if we move away from indigenous or Australian indigenous names, do we have any birds currently that are named from other cultures? Sure, I, I mentioned um, uh, coel, cockatoo, cockatiel is actually a diminutive form of um, of, of cockatoo from Malay. Um, I mentioned coral and jacana. Um, there are, uh, well, kukul is, well, kukul is one of those really seriously, seriously weird ones. Um, it was, uh, came from Africa, uh, well, came from, from French, um, collected in Africa. Um, it was in the, an abbreviation of cuckoo alouette, which is cuckoo lark. Cook owl. Now that's weird enough in itself. I guess we're not supposed to think about um, what the heck this fabulous, great shambling oaf of a bird has to do with a lark. Um, mm. Cassowary is another, which um, comes from also Malay and Indonesian. Um, there are probably others, but there, there, there's some obvious ones that we use all the time. Oh, Jabiru, which is a name we often use for. Um, 
uh, for uh, Black Next Stalk. Um, Jabra is actually um, a South American stalk. It's white rather than uh, primarily black. Um, and that comes from the Brazilian language as well. Um, as an aside, there's a, um, a lesson to be learned uh, from the town of Longreach, um, which has admirably named most of its streets after street names after birds. Um, they use the name Jabiru Street, which I don't have any problems with. It's just an alternative name. But unfortunately, they chose for that one street, they chose to illustrate it with a nice, nice picture. And it's a, a warning to not to rely too much on um, purely on the um, on, on, on the internet without a little bit of background information because the Jabiru they use for that street is the South American Jabiru picture and that's a little embarrassing, I think. Did you have any particularly favourite bird names or bird meanings? Yeah, I, well, there's a few I can throw off. Um, different types of ones interest me. Firstly, you know, a couple of the, just the old names. So Cormorant, for example, comes from uh, is an abbreviation from Latin, uh, Corvus marinus or sea crow. Um, gull comes from either Welsh or Cornish, um, Gwelin or Gwelin, uh, which means someone who wails. Now, what's fascinating is why, well, two things are fascinating. One is why on earth did a Gaelic word get incorporated into English? It's usually conquering languages that do that. The second part is when they heard it, they thought it was a, a plural, the E-N on the end, like oxen, for example. So to make a singular, they dropped the N and made gull. Um, anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a curious one. I've mentioned kukul before. In Australia, um, look, the story of the origin of the word Rosella is an oldie, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with it, but it's still worth, worth telling briefly. Mm. Um, in Sydney, um, outer in the district, uh, woodland district called Rose Hill, out to the, uh, to the west of Botany Bay, uh, the area where Parramatta now stands, they came across see spectacular coloured parrots, um, which they call Rose Hill parrots after the after the locality. After a while, with their already developing Australian, what we would recognise as Australia type um, habits, it became Rose Hiller, which eventually became Roselle, by which time they'd forgotten what the origin of the name was, and then Rosella. Um, Gould um, didn't use that. He just called, he he liked the more formal name, so he called it Rose Hill Parakeet. Um, but that got forgotten, and for the rest of that century, they were referred to as Rosella. Now, in fact, Eastern Rosellas were the only ones that were called Rosella. They were just just called Rosella, no Eastern. All the other Rosellas uh, were just called parrots. That didn't get sorted out till 1926 either. Now, I find that curious, which were widely used in Tasmania. Um, Tasmanian native hens are often called turbo chooks for their way they race across the ground. And that's a, that's a common usage in Tasmania. Um, an old bloke I used to know uh, called Noisy Firebirds Leatherheads for uh, his description. So clearly that's the name that's still around. A name for um, apostle birds is CWA birds. And I'm sure that's a, uh, an affectionate nod to the fact that the Country Women's Association in its meetings generally doesn't neglect the sociable side of things and cedar and uh, apostle birds are very sociable indeed. Um, among those not widely used but which have caught my attention as I've gone through, peacock wren. Um, you want to hazard a guess what a peacock wren is or maybe you read it? No, I haven't read it. A peacock wren, a splendid fairy wren be my guess. <laughs> no, you, sorry, no sane person could ever guess it. Um, it was a name used for a while for a lyrebird. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose the peacock, the peacock 
the peacock makes sense. But where does the ring come from? <laughs> <laughs> Shepherd's clock was uh, it was a, a name that may still be used for kookaburras um, for obvious reasons. One of the weirdest ones I've ever come across um, was another name for a possible bird. In the 1920s, a bloke called um, Major Flowers in the um, uh, Royal Society of Britain Journal, so it wasn't a, you know, a, a backstreet journal, uh, proposed that possible birds should be known as grey bullfinch jays. Fortunately, nobody else seemed to think that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mentioned earlier Gould's direct translations, and the re, and the, the, which were a reason why a lot of his names didn't make it through to us. Names like Swift Flying Hemipode, Little Thonicula, Black-throated Sophodes, Oscillated Laopoa, and Ground Grawkulus, I think we're never going to capture the public imagination. Do you want me to go back through those and translate them? <laughs> yeah, you can if you want. Yeah. Well, Swift Flying Hemipode is a, a, a little, a little uh, button quail. Little, um, little Thonicola um, was a, um, a striated warbler for the, um, again, the, from the genus name. The Black-throated Sophodes was a Western Whipbird. The oscillated Laopoa um, was a Malifowl. And in each case, the second, you know, the main name is the genus name, and ground Grawkulus was a ground cookie shrine. Um, but he proposed them as, as names that people should be using, and I dare say for a while they were. And the other one which I find fascinating and amusing is when names lose their meaning, either because new species turn up which don't relate to the original meaning. Um, wattle birds, a good example. Wattle birds are not known for anything to do with wattle trees, of course, because of the wattles, like a chook's wattles on the face. But then they found little wattle birds, which are um, presumably for scarlet robins around the Sydney region because they were a bird with a red breast, obviously. But then they found pink robins and yellow robins and black and white robins, but they still stayed robins, so that um, nexus had been cut. Parnalote yeah. is a... Um, that comes from a classical um, word, uh, same root word as leopard, so it means spotted. So a spotted pardalote um, is, uh, is is very much a tautology. Um, striated pardalote is a complete oxymoron. There's other ones where the origin has been completely forgotten, so it doesn't make sense. The, bird, the spectacular is, um, as an Australian parrot called a king parrot, um, fabulous green and red thing, big thing, um, was originally named um, in the early uh, 19th century uh, for um, Governor King. So it was King's Parrot with a, uh, an apostrophe. Mm. That, was, even by Gould's time in the, in the 1840s, that was forgotten. He called him King Parrot. And the whole thing got even more comp confused when, for reasons beyond my comprehension, the 1978 RAOU list hyphenated it and called it the King Parrot. I don't know why. And by then, the connection had been completely lost. One more, which I think is a, uh, a fascinating one, the regent, as in Regent Bowerbird. This goes back to a bloke called Thomas Scottow, who was in the 19th century commander of the new Newcastle Penal Settlement, who worked with a convict artist called Richard Brown uh, to produce an illustrated manuscript. They included the bird that we would call the Regent Bowerbird. He called it initially a golden-crowned honeysucker, he then changed it to Regent Berg, which he thought was going to help with sales. He claimed to have shot the bird on the day that George IV's regency was lifted. We don't need to go into that. I suspect that Scott Howe was one of the few fans in the world of uh, gambling, gambling, philandering, loud and addicted alcoholic George IV. 
Um, but that's what he called. That's what he called it. Now the story grew, which didn't actually originate with Scott Howe, that that meant that black and yellow were George's colours. That wasn't the case at all. That was just simply the the the, the very vague nexus that I've mentioned. But not only did Regent Honey, uh, Regent Bowerbird stay that way, but later other yellow and black species like um, Regent Parrot and Regent Honeyeater were named for the same totally spurious reason. Oh, there you go. That's all very interesting. I had a, I, I was, I might still ask you the question. Why don't we change the names that don't make sense? Like Magpie, Wren, etc. All the ones that, that just, they aren't what they say they are. Why don't we just change those names? Well, I mean, you know, all, all I can offer is an opinion, I suppose. But uh, I think the problem is that most of bird organisations are never going to read the rule that says you've got to stop calling it a bagpipe. So that the, if we were to do that and call it, I don't know, a Australian uh, you know, Southern Gimnarina or something, um, most of the population would ignore us and go on talking about magpies and wouldn't have a clue what we were talking about. Um, so I think it's a very much a practical problem. I think the thing to remember too is that names tell us more about ourselves than they do about the birds in many cases, particularly the sort of cases we've been talking about. Um, they're part of our culture and our history. Scientific names are there to say so you've got an anchor so that um, you know for, if you need to be certain what, what you're talking about, you use a scientific name. Um, mm. It behoves us, I think, to be aware of the various names that other people are using so that we, we can communicate. Um, but I don't think it's a good idea for us bird people to be too snooty and um, didactic about uh, the use of common names um, because they are just common names and, and uh, the bird's name is what someone calls it and it by. That's true. Well, I think we've uh, just about run out of time, which is a bit sad. Um, I'm sure we could continue talking for ages, but I, I do I have one more question which I ask everyone who comes on the show and that is if you've got a recommendation of a place in Australia that you would suggest everybody goes birding at least once in their life whether it's just a small little place which is out of the way or um, a big national park do you have anywhere in mind that you would suggest? My problem is that about 13 names just flashed through my mind when you said that <laughs> So someone asked me, you know, what my favourite bird is. My answer, which sounds spurious, but is actually um, quite sincere, is the one I'm looking at. I don't know a national park in Australia that I visited that I haven't enjoyed. I love the tropics. I love the desert perhaps more than anything else. Um, so if you were going to really pin me down, um, I was going to say one of the desert parts, but I think I, I'll go back to my roots in South Australia uh, and talk about and. and and nominate any of the um, of, of the Mallee parks um, in, in, in the Murray lands. I, I've started by land birding in the Mallee, and I go back to it whenever. It's probably my favourite habitat. Probably not a satisfactory answer, but um, that's the one that springs to mind. That'll do. <laughs> yeah, we'll use it. All right, well, Ian, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, like I've said a few times, um, I definitely recommend getting the book, especially if you're interested in history or words or names. Um, it's called Australian Bird Names, Origins and Meanings, and I will, I'll put a picture of it up um, with this podcast. But, yeah, thanks for coming on and giving us some of your time, and maybe we'll see you around in the field sometime. Thanks, Michael. It's very much been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed chatting to you. Good luck with it. Bye-bye. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you found that interesting. 
I did just want to finish going back to the Gordian Finch that I mentioned at the start. This is what it says about the Gordian Finch. Of everything that I read, this was my favourite meaning. And I haven't read the whole book, but of what I've read. Gordian Finch. And this this might take me a minute and a half to read, so bear with me. But I think it's interesting enough. For Elizabeth Gould, a highly talented artist married to John Gould until her sadly early death at the age of 37. John Gould usually contained his feelings as per the Victorian era, but on this occasion he went to what were probably the limits that the times allowed. It is in fact beyond the power of my pen to describe or the pencil or my pencil to portray anything like the splendour of the changeable hues of the lilac band which crosses the breast of this little gem. It is therefore with feelings of no ordinary nature that I have ventured to dedicate this new and lovely little bird to the memory of her, who in addition to being a most affectionate wife, for several years laboured so hard and so zealously assisted me with her pencil in my various works, but who, after having made a circuit of the globe with me and braved many changes with a courage only equalled by her virtues, and while cheerfully engaged in illustrating the present work, was by the divine will of her maker suddenly called from this to a brighter and better world. And I feel assured that in dedicating this bird to the memory of Mrs. Gould, I shall have the full sanction of all who were personally acquainted with her, as well as those who only knew her by her delicate works as an artist. I think if you have that sort of information in your head next time you see a Gordian finch and any of the birds in this book, if you have the information over why they're called that, how it came to be. I just think it adds just that little bit more to the experience. So go out, buy the book, and uh, yeah, hope everybody has a fantastic fortnight. Get in some birding, and until next time, happy birding. <laughs>